John Wayne, it's a name synonymous with classic Western films. Today, his youngest son, Ethan Wayne, is my guest. And the Cowboys, it, it just reminded me of the really good qualities that my father had, the way he talked to the boys, uh, the, the sort of the care uh, that you see in his eyes. We'll hear what it was like growing up as the son of one of the legendary actors of all time, how he coped with losing his dad at a young age, and how the family is continuing the legacy of their father, John Wayne, on this episode of the Working Ranch Radio Show. Welcome again, everyone, and we're glad to have you here with us for another episode of the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm your host, Justin Mills. Today is episode 56, and if you want to go back and listen to it, or you want to go back and find it, if you pretty much search any podcast platform out there under Working Ranch Radio Show, you will find us, and not only will you find today's episode, but you'll find all of our previous ones as well. It's a real simple way to go in and listen to them, uh, share them on social media or through your email as well and uh, we appreciate you doing that also don't forget to leave a comment if you like something that you heard or if you I guess if you didn't like something please leave us a comment on that too because we sure want to know ways that we can serve you better as we appreciate all of you out there listening as well and appreciate our audience that have been very supportive of everything we do here at the Working Ranch Radio Show well we have an exciting show today as Ethan Wayne the son of John Wayne if you remember the movie Big Jake well there was little Jake McCandles that was the boy in that movie yep that was the Duke's very own son Ethan Wayne he played that role he also was in some other movies with his father as well but that movie particularly Big Jake you know that was 51 years ago 1971 was when that movie came out and so we are very pleased to have John Wayne's son Ethan to be joining us as I said in our opening he's going to be talking about what it was like being the son of John Wayne was he was he a father that made you really toe the line or what was it like? And he's going to talk about uh, his his life on the movie sets with his dad uh, on their boat as well. And uh, just a lot of different things. We're going to be getting into the new museum that's been open for just a little over a year down in Fort Worth and the stockyards there and then also the legacy that lives on through the uh, cancer research and things that are going on there so a lot of things to talk about with with Ethan Wayne appreciate him taking the time to join us here on the working ranch radio show also joining us today the captain Tim O'Byrne will be in in just a few moments for this week's edition of Tim's two cents and of course in our very last segment today meteorologist Don Day will be joining us with a look at our long-term weather weather. A big thanks to our sponsors of the Working Ranch Radio Show, the American Cemental Association, from maternal traits to terminal traits. You know, bull season is upon us. We've already had several bulls uh, sales all across the country, and uh, right now, if you're wanting good maternal and terminal traits, have you ever thought Sim Genetics? You can provide increased profitability back to your pocket. Sim Genetics is profit through science. Find out more at Simmental.org. The American Hereford is Association, come home to Hereford and the North American Limousine Foundation. Limousine cattle deliver to your bottom line. And finally, the King Ranch Institute of Ranch Management. Applications are being taken now for their master's program. We'll talk about it more in just a moment. But right now, it's time to check in with the captain, Tim O'Byrne, publisher and editor of Working Ranch Magazine for this week's edition of Tim's Two Cents. 
Hey, Justin, everybody out there in radio land. Well, one thing about this pandemic, uh, Christine and I, of course, have spent a lot of time hunkered down in camp here. And she's been not necessarily teaching me how to cook, but she's been showing me how she cooks. And I do a lot of chopping and, you know, uh, flipping stuff. And over that time, I've learned that she has quite a cast iron collection. And of course, each one's a little bit different. And uh, she's got a name for every one of them. And uh, it's, it's like George Strait's guitar collection. I mean, they're kind of precious to her. And I didn't realize just how precious they were to her until one day I flippantly asked, hey, honey, in this marriage of the two of us, me or this cast iron collection, who rates the highest? And I got to tell you, Justin, I was surprised at the amount of time she took to ponder that. She was kind of looking at the pans, kind of looking me up and down. Anyway, that's what we're doing here. And I hope you guys are having a great spring or maybe it's going to warm up here for you folks up north. Back to you, Justin. Oh, man, it sounds like you two have been held up in camp just a tad too long. But I guess on the bright side of it, uh, Captain, you're probably getting some pretty good meals in the process. And uh, and for Christine, uh, you know, for her, she's getting the best of both worlds. She's getting to cook with two of her favorite things, her cast iron cookware and you in no particular order of course <laughs> anyways thanks captain for this week's edition of tim's two cents well stay with us coming up next ethan wayne is my guest as we talk about his life as the son of john wayne we'll be back with more on the working ranch radio show after this It's a competitive calf market, and buyers want calves that will perform, period. And a proven solution is Simmental. In fact, data from the Tri-County Steer Carcass Fatirity from 2002 through 2018 on nearly 60,000 head of calves revealed that Simmental sired calves represented the highest carcass-valued sired group over English and other continental breed groups. And the sire group that was the second highest carcass value was Simangus sire. So... The proof's right there. For low-risk, high-potential calves with earning potential, be confident that Sim Genetics will give you more per head, period. Stand strong, Simmental. Welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show. Justin Mills here with you, and uh, I'm very pleased to have our guest uh, today that's going to be joining us for our program. You know, I know for a lot of us, uh, if you're listening, probably most of us out there are pretty avid fans of western movies and there's uh one name when you really think of some of the classic western movies that probably comes to mind and that would be john wayne and so with that uh, we're very pleased to have his youngest son ethan wayne joining us on our program today and ethan thanks for being here on the working ranch radio show I'm happy to be here. I wish I was on a working ranch. <laughs> well, well, it's uh, this time of the year up here in northeast Wyoming. It, it's a bit chilly, but I know folks across the country, it's we're kind of have a cold spell. And and luckily, where you're at out in the on the west coast, you kind of have some nicer weather out there. Well, we we have great weather and horrible politics. Take <laughs> <laughs> your pick. I don't know. I I I better just be happy with where I'm at. <laughs> 
So, well, let's get into some questions here. And, uh, and I know a lot of times you, you do a lot of interviews, uh, about, about your father and, uh, and, and he was, uh, his legacy continues to live on. We're going to talk more about that in a little bit, but our particular audience, of course, is, is a lot of ranching. Uh, those that are on working ranches across the country and, I think with with your with your dad's role in so many of the movies he played, uh, he played a cattle rancher probably as much as he did anything else, didn't he? Yeah, and all the uh, you know the early issues that they faced uh, running their business, getting their cattle to market. Um, yeah, I just watched the Cowboys mm-hmm. yesterday, day before yesterday. Every once in a while, I, I, you know, I got to watch it because. You know, I look at the Cowboys and I, I think, okay, he's he's 56 when I was born. I was about 10. Mm-hmm. I was with him on that set. So he was, you know, 66 years old. And I remember seeing, you know, it's 5 o'clock in the morning. The sun's just coming up. And he's he's running his horse, you know, in a herd of horses to, mm-hmm. to get these scenes. And, and I, you know, I have to remind myself, that's who we represent. You know, that's the, the value set and that's the character. And that's a guy who's, you know, one long, you know, bunch of injuries. He's up at, you know, five, six o'clock in the morning at 7,000 feet running through a herd of horses. That, mm-hmm. That's the guy. Yeah, yeah. I lost him when I was 17. So, you know, part of my life with him, he was older. And uh, uh, it's just, it, it's good for my frame of reference to see him sort of in his element and remember what a, you know, bold, courageous, get up every day, get your work done treat people fairly, you know, be self-reliant. It, it just, it resets my, I guess you could say my moon compass yeah. or just what I put value on. Do we put value on the dollar alone? I see a, a big push in corporate America, I guess you could say, uh, that that all the, the value is put on the dollar and less on the moral consequences of what they're doing, whether it's, uh, you know, to the workforce or to the country as a whole, you know, or are they just serving the dollar and shareholders? And, you know, the shareholders probably don't think a lot about this sometimes. Mm-hmm. But when I look at my father, I realize that you have to consider the morality and the consequences of some of your decisions. And so it helps me continue to learn and try to be a better person or better in business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And there were some real morals and ethics that were in the roles that he was playing that I think, uh, you know, we see in our rural America that we try to hold on to. And, and he represents that. He did. And, you know, again, I have to, you know, I have to remember what he represented on screen was, you know, us collectively as a people. Like, what's the best of what we as America had to offer in the way of character and, and a set of values? Mm-hmm. And I think what you see on the screen is really, you know, five decades of somebody focusing on that and trying to bring to the screen a character that we can all admire uh, and strive to be more like. Even, you know, uh, Duke Wayne at home, Mm -hmm. I think, looked at John Wayne like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, he had a lot of those qualities in, in himself. Uh, but I think John Wayne was also something that he wanted to craft and he wanted to make sure it was somebody you wanted as your brother, as your best friend, uh, to marry your daughter, to, you know, to be, to be that, that type of person. And I think the world came to see him as that type of person and us as a country through him as those types of people. Mm -hmm. 
And I do feel we've wandered from that a little bit. And I wonder if it's because rural life, you know, has, uh, I know where I grew up, it was a little beach town surrounded by agriculture. Mm -hmm. Now it's a little beach town surrounded by subdivisions. So all that beautiful farmland is now homes, right? Because of the dollar. I mean, you, you can't escape that. It's they're, they're, it's valuable ground. But the mentality that that worked those ranches and built those ranches and, and took care of the animals or took care of the, the land, uh, I think sometimes we get away from that in, um, you know, more densely populated areas. Yeah, I, I could be wrong, but it's just a feeling that I have. When we talk about your your father's movies, uh, as we talked about, he rep- you know he's really thought of as being you know a cowboy. Um, you talked about you just recently watching the the movie The Cowboys. Of all of his ranching movies, which one was your favorite? Well, I don't have the specific list of of what films he was a rancher on in my head, but you know if I think about it, you have you know McClintock. Yeah, yeah. Red River and Chisholm and Cowboys. It's uh, it's hard for me. You know, I've fallen in love with the Cowboys recently because it really reminds me of uh, I, I, you know, some I went in all the movie locations and some I was more involved than them, like Big Jake and the Cowboys and some yeah. I was less involved in, but I was there. But you know what? Uh, once I got to eight, nine, ten years old, we could go horseback riding together. We could do stuff. You know, he let me drive the car around. We were always in a sort of rural or remote environment, so I had more freedom than I did, you know, at home, and I loved it. Uh, and I just had, you know, a good bonding experience with my father. So sometimes I'm watching the films for a different reason than maybe somebody else yeah, would. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm getting a piece of my dad back. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Cowboys, it, it just reminded me of the really good qualities that my father had, the way he talked to the boys, uh, the, the sort of the care uh, that you see in his eyes, and then the pride that you see in his eyes as the boys develop, mm-hmm. and you know the importance of passing those life lessons on to them. Uh, it's just, I think it's a spectacular film, and I recommended it to somebody the other day who had never seen any John Wayne movies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they, they were skeptical and they wrote me back and they, they were like, what a wonderful experience. <laughs> you know, I, I laughed, I cried, yeah. you know, I was filled with joy and, uh, you know, just the magnificent scenery that comes along with most John Wayne films. It's, uh, yeah. it's, uh, it's, a, it's a great, it was a great form of entertainment and he really had a, a good formula for delivering it. Yeah. Well, I think the stability that he that he showed in that particular movie, you know, as you've talked about uh, before, you know, you, you're watching some of these movies because it's a way for you to to see to go back and see your father as, as he passed away at an early age for you. For the most part, you can see that. And he provided that stability like it, in that particular movie. There was stability and a sense of assurance that he provided to those boys in that movie. Then you take a movie like McClintock and you get to see the humorous side of him uh, and yet uh, in a in a in a very great role and just the dynamics between those two movies really shows his character yeah and mcclintock i was just a little boy i think i was remember i was just born or maybe that was right before i was born but again terrific movie mm-hmm. terrific lessons you know I, I i always think those messages obviously he picked them and he he helped craft them but somebody you know some guys knew how to write well for him yeah and i think a lot of people crave that 
that type of character and that that type of entertainment again. Yeah. Just you know, life lessons. The way he talks to his son. The way he says, "I don't give jobs. I hire men." <laughs> you know, yeah. certain things like that. They just they they stick with me. Yeah. But they stick with you know millions of people around the world too. Mm-hmm. And and everyone aspires to to be more like that or to be associated or know somebody like that or be able to live their lives like that. You know, every day I I look forward to sharing him with people. Yeah. And and I'm a novice, right? Because I grew up. He was my father. I wasn't focused on his films uh, as a as a young man growing up. Um, it's just a different dynamic when you're someone's son. I love my dad, mm-hmm. but I didn't come to him through his on-screen roles. That's happening now in my later life. Sure. You know, I'm obviously been fond of him forever, <laughs> but I'm 59 now, and it, every time I I watch a film, I get I get something else out of it. They're just, they're national treasures. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I'm this kid, but I really feel like the, the messaging, the values that are represented, the character that's represented are important to people around the world. Mm-hmm. We'll stay with us. Let's take a break here. We're going to continue our conversation as we have Ethan Wayne, son of John Wayne, our guest today on our program. We've got a lot more to talk about. And coming up right after the break, we're going to talk about the horses that John Wayne rode. We'll be back with more after this. If you could do something today that would bring you a profit tomorrow, would you do it? In the cattle business, it's about efficiency. And with Limousine Genetics in your herd, your profit is just one calf crop away. With Limousine or Limflex cattle, it's more pounds, naturally, to sell at weaning. It's growth and feed efficiency with the added benefit of carcass merit. The other side of the profit coin with Limousine Genetics is the maternal efficiency, docility, and longevity of your cows and bulls. It's as simple as Limousine Today profit tomorrow. Welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills, and we're going to get to our guest, Ethan Wayne, in just a few moments. But uh, on a side note here, you know, there are those riding lead on some of these larger ranches today that uh, they know livestock and they know things like natural resource management. But those that we would consider to be exceptional are set apart by their business savvy, by their ability to communicate and to lead people. Well, the King Ranch Institute for Ranch Management master's degree program can provide you that leg up, that can give you that exceptional ability to advance your ranching career. The curriculum, the internship, uh, management projects, outreach education events that will sharpen your management skills and also expand your professional network. Now, if you'd like to share that experience with over 45 alumni all across the country that currently manage over 7 million acres, and 155,000 head of cattle, well, then check out the program at the King Ranch Institute for Ranch Management. If you just go to your favorite web browser and type in K-R-I-R-M for King Ranch Institute Ranch Management, type it into your web browser, you can find it and find out more about the master's program at the King Ranch Institute for Ranch Management. Well, let's get back to our guest today. Ethan Wayne is joining us. He is the son of legendary John Wayne that uh, we all fondly have in our memories as uh, his icon and his roles for portraying 
our Western industry. And Ethan, thanks for again for joining us on our program. You know, I notice as I watch movies or, or even old TV shows, Westerns back in, you know, the 50s, 60s that were done then, some of the horses that were used uh, in some, of, I, I think I like Bonanza or The Rifleman or some things like that, you know, blocky old, old half, uh, look like half draft type horses. But one of the things I noticed like in your, in your dad's movies is he rode pretty good horses and, and, and riding horses was pretty natural for him. I thought so too. And, and recently I just heard some stories about how he would, well, I want to talk to my brother, Patrick, because the house that uh, I was born in Encino. And as soon as I was born, we moved down to Newport beach, but the, the house in Encino had five acres and it had a horse barn and, and like a big riding corral. And I, I asked my brother Patrick, I said, I don't remember, but did, did he keep horses? I said, oh, God, no, he didn't keep horses. He didn't have time. <laughs> um, you, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. he, he didn't have time for that. Every film, you were gone for three months, and then you had post-production, and then you had, you know, marketing and advertising, and then you had, you know, demands for speeches and tours and, yeah. and this and that. So he, he didn't have a lot of time for it, but he grew up on horses. Uh, he had a horse when he was a young boy as he would ride to school. And uh, uh, the horse had some type of uh, intestinal disease, like a, a wasting disease. <laughs> yeah. And he tried to take really good care of the horse. And uh, it, you know, it didn't survive. But throughout that process, that few-month process, people accused him of abusing the horse. And so there was like a little investigation. They came in and they realized, no, he's not abusing. He's taking great care of it. But the horse has this disease that is not curable. Mm -hmm. you know, at that time or at that place. And I think that was a lesson that, that stayed with him throughout life. And I, I think when he lost that horse, it was a really devastating for him. He was very close to it mm -hmm. as a young boy. But then as he got into his profession, you know, he was uh, very aware of things. And so if he saw himself on screen and he didn't like the way he moved or he looked or he rode the horse or he wore something, he went to work trying to fix it. And he was around Yakima Kanat, and he was around Harry Carey Sr., and he was around Wyatt Earp. Mm -hmm. So he had, uh, you know, a great, rich mentor environment to be able to go, hey, I don't like the way I'm looking in this situation. You know, what do I do? And so he got, you know, either coached or found the information himself, but he would go work on writing before films, mm -hmm. at least in his later years. He would go up to a place and he would spend a few weeks riding, picking out horses, just getting back in the saddle. Because like anything else, you know, athletic, it's, it's sort of perishable. But uh, one thing he did was make sure he was good with the gun uh, and he was good on the horse to go along with his performance. Mm -hmm. So I, where I thought it was natural, I, I found out later in life that, no, that was something that he specifically worked on and made sure that he looked correct on the horse because he wasn't a rodeo cowboy. And if you watch Ben Johnson, who was a rodeo yeah, champion yeah. with John Wayne, John Wayne still looks like the better <laughs> horseman or cowboy, Yeah, you know? And, and so he knew how to, to do it and he knew how to do it for the camera and for the screen. He was, um, you know, if you're a craftsman, whether you're doing, you know, woodwork or leather work or you're an artist or painter, he was a craftsman of, you know, stories. Mm -hmm. And um, every aspect of that, the telling of that story was important to him. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, from his boots to his belt, to the gun rig that he wore, to the horse, to the saddle. He knew what he wanted and he was very seasoned in 
in doing this job. Mm-hmm. So he was, uh, what was that, that outliers book where, you know, you get 10,000 hours of, of work into something yep. and you become a master. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, he was certainly a master of his craft and trade and horses were a big part of it. And when I watch him, you know, I can't deny it. You know, you just can't deny the way the man looks on a horse. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or the way he handles that colt. Yeah. Just a moment ago, you talked about some of the folks that he was friends with and and you mentioned Wyatt Earp. Did he ever share any stories with you about his friendship or anything with Wyatt Earp? No, none that I can remember. You know, he died when I was 17. Yeah. So the young relationship with him on location, you know, we'd get to go ride horses. If we weren't on location, he'd be on his boat uh, that he bought right around the time I was born. It was a 136 foot converted World War II minesweeper called the Wild Goose. And, um, you know, my life was in these sections. If he's making mm-hmm. a film, we're gone for three months in Mexico. And then, you know, we might go straight to Alaska if it's summer and get on the boat or British Columbia. If it's winter, we might go straight down, you know, to somewhere in Mexico, whether it's in the Sea of Cortez or Cabo Lucas or Acapulco or Puerto Vallarta or Mazatlan, you might get on this boat. So, you know, my life as a, as a young boy was outdoorsy and adventurous and on movie sets and on that boat. Mm-hmm. And then a, a small period of our time was at home where I could play with my friends and, you know, go to school and, and uh, do the things that kids do at home. But then, you know, something else comes up and we're gone again. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a, a little intermittent for me, but I didn't get to the age where we had uh, conversations about his career or, you know, anything in depth about Wyatt Earp or Yakima or, you know, I might remember him, you know, fondly remembering one of his friends that had passed because I was, he was 56 by the time I was born. Mm-hmm. So by the time I'm, you know, eight or nine or 10, when I have like, you know, early memories, um, some of his friends like were gone, like, you know, his brother and Ward Bond, eventually John Ford and, you know, a lot of these guys uh, had passed. So he had good friends that that i knew when i was around but you know the older group had gone yeah, yeah. So we, you know wyatt was older when he was younger so i don't know just in reading reading stories about him i you know i know that that was there yeah a question that i got sent to me that i was going to ask you and i don't know if you have the answer to this is in its regards to the true grit film that was done and that was the question is did, did he really jump over that three rail fence in the closing scene or was that a double and i don't know if you know you have the answer to that question Oh, no, he did it. He did yeah. it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so. He did it. It's a great scene. It was icy and snowy and cold and high altitude, <laughs> you know. We're the worst about weight, you know. To, they, you never get to do stuff like that when you're feeling great, you know, and like, oh, I'm going to jump over the thing right now. <laughs> you know, it's later when you're tired and cold and something's happened and you've gotten terrible news or, you know, and then you've got to go do it. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, so interesting. It doesn't always happen when you want, but you still have to go do it. Yeah. Well, stay with us. We're going to take a break here. And when we come back, Ethan Wayne continues with us as our guest today, talking about his life as the son of John Wayne. And we talked about that many roles he played was that of a rancher on the big screen. But yeah, he was also a rancher in real life. It was the 26 Bar Hereford Ranch in Arizona. We're going to talk about that plus more after this on the Working Ranch Radio Show.
ka-ching. More pounds, more calves, more profit. Studies show Hereford Genetics increased net profit by $51 per cow per year. That's $20,000 in additional revenue for a typical 400 cow outfit. And calves sired by Hereford bulls continue to add value through the chain. A documented $30 per head in feedlot profitability. That's real money and real results. Get more ka-ching. Come home to Hereford at Hereford.org. Welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show. Justin Mills here with you. My guest today is Ethan Wayne. We've had some great conversation already about uh, his life as the son of John Wayne now. And Ethan, I want to talk about your your dad's ranch. I mean, he was a he owned a cattle ranch as well, the 26 Bar Hereford Ranch in Arizona. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I, I mean, what what what's your memories of that? We used to have a bull sale. He used to have a bull sale. Mm-hmm with his ranching partner, Lewis Johnson. And uh, so it was also kind of a big family get together. So all the brothers and sisters, their kids, everybody would show up in Casa Grande, Arizona. And uh, that's down where the feedlot was. Okay. So it wasn't a, a real beautiful area, uh, but it was a great time. And uh, a lot of people came in to buy bulls there. And so it was a big sort of party and as kids, you know, we tore around, we teased the bulls, and we <laughs> stole golf carts and, you know, got into all kinds of trouble. So it was it was a lot of fun. But that ranch was, was serious business for him. Sure. He, um, you know, he had advisors and people who might put him into a deal. And I think that was a deal that he was put into. And uh, it was it was failing. Uh, so he, uh, the story that I heard is he flew down. Uh, to the area and he you know got some reports from the people who were there and uh he just said hey who's the most successful farmer down here and everybody said well it's a fellow named lewis johnson mm-hmm. so he set up a meeting with lewis and he said hey lewis you know what? here here's here's my story you know i got this thing here's this land you're the best operator down here i'd like to like to get you involved mm-hmm. so they made a deal and they went to work and then i, I think they had a uh, it took a couple of years to get the thing really ramped up, and then they decided that they wanted to be partners, and uh, it, it turned out to be a, a terrific business partnership, mm-hmm. and also, uh, I think, one of his best friendships. Oh, really? Um, he was very close to Lewis Johnson and his wife, Alice, and uh, Lewis was one of the executives of the estate and a confidant, and uh, I think he could zip down to their place and feel, you know, like he did on his boat. He had some uh, some space and some privacy to be himself and to spend yeah. some friends without a lot of interruptions. So that ranch was was one financially successful, uh, and two, I don't know what you call it, emotionally successful. Sure, sure. You know, he had a, a solid partner who who took care of him, and uh, a, a great friendship grew out of that working relationship. So they had, I, I don't know exactly how many thousands of acres it was, but they grew thousands of acres of cotton and they had thousands of acres of grassland up in Northeastern Arizona by Eager and Springerville that they would uh, you know, graze the cattle on and then they'd truck them down to Casa Grande for the, the final feed lot you know, and processing. Mm-hmm. 
So I I have vague memories, you know, maybe I'm five, six, seven years old, running around down there, going up to Springerville, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. doing that. For me, it was, you know, life was sort of a party when it was with him because he was, <laughs> he was doing something and I could go climb on a horse or do whatever. Mm-hmm. But that ranch was, um, it was really the significant portion of his estate after he passed. And uh, I just think an, an important piece of his life in, mm-hmm. in the later years. Yeah. You know, I'm 59. I've been running this business for the last 10 or 12 years um, since my brother Michael died. And, you know, everybody comes up to me. You know, your dad owned that whole mountain in Palomar. You know, your dad owned thousands of acres <laughs> up in Aspen. I'm like, I don't know it. And I don't know anything about it. He, he didn't have it by the time he yeah. died. Or mm-hmm. He cut a wide swath through life. And I think he was the type of guy who was, you know, could earn, you know, back in the day and uh, liked to have fun with people that he met, mm-hmm. whether it's, you know, treasure hunting and in uh, Panama or starting a shrimping operation or, you know, looking at turquoise and silver mines in Colorado or, uh, you know, trying to make a booze or, you know, mm-hmm. so many interests. What he really did do was grow cotton, feed cattle, raise pride of her for bulls yeah. and work in the movies Mm -hmm. those those were two real successful operations that he had i think he had a lot of other fun interests but you know maybe some people took advantage of him or he was the the guy holding the tab at the end of the day if something didn't work and i I think a lot of people took advantage of the situation lewis johnson didn't yeah lewis johnson fulfilled uh completely Mm -hmm. uh cared about john wayne cared about the operation knew what he was doing knew how to grow cotton, you know, I mean, he was good at it and he was a good partner. I want to switch subjects now, if we can, and talk about your dad as a father in your house. And I know you were on the younger side of all of your siblings, but, uh, you know, what was it like? Uh, Did he he run a a tight ship? Uh, But uh, what was it like being the son of John Wayne in your house? Well, before my parents split up, you know, we had dinner together every night and uh, it was a a tighter bond and he had time to you know he helped me with schoolwork and we did we discussed stories together and we did math and you know it really made it interesting for me and then as he you know separated from my mother i think more stress came into his life and he had less time mm-hmm. for those kinds of activities it's right he definitely felt like you know the the stablest part of my life but there was also a, a period where you know a certain point he got he had to go back out and, and earn and there were, you know, relationship issues and things like that. So said there were times where maybe I had a little too much freedom mm-hmm. and he was older. So how much, you know, yeah, if yeah. you're, <laughs> if you're in your mid sixties and you got a eight year old or a nine year old, you know, tearing around the house, how much energy do you have for that? Yeah. To get into that element of your life, uh, you know, for any kids that lose their parents at a young age, that's difficult. And from your perspective, how did that impact you? Man, I, I, you know, it's hard to say. It, it is young. At the time, at the time, you know, there's just, those are just tough years in general for a young man, 17, 18, 19. And then to, um, you know, to be a little lost, a little rudderless without your, mm-hmm. your uh, sort of stable component of your, you know, your parent, your parental guidance, I guess you could call it. Um, I was lucky that I knew some stunt guys and uh, a guy named Gary McClarty used to go 
motorcycle riding or racing with him. And we got on the phone and he said, how old are you? And I said, I'm 17. He said, do you want to come work for me? And I was like, yeah, I've missed the last two and a half or three months of uh, my junior year. And uh, school wasn't, you know, really holding my interest at that point in my life. Um, so I went uh, like two days later, showed up at Universal Studios, got in a van, went to Chicago and worked on the Blues Brothers. Mm-hmm. Got my Screen Actors Guild card on that job. You know, started working with some of the stunt guys that I'd grown up with. And um, it just gave me some direction. And so I'm I'm forever grateful to him for pulling me under his wing uh, and giving me something to do. Mm-hmm. And when I got back, a, another fellow named Gary Jensen hired me on um, a bunch of the television shows in the in the eighties, like you know, Knight Rider and BJ and the Bear and et cetera, et cetera. And I started getting little little acting roles on those and and uh, so those guys gave me a a thing to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, that was a a big boost for me. Yeah. Your dad uh, fought and battled and beat lung cancer in 1964, and then it was about 15 years later when he when he passed away due to stomach cancer. But that also led to the creation of the John Wade Cancer Foundation. That really has been a very huge and a dynamic element of, of something that I know you're part of as well. Talk about where, what that's been doing. Well, it's funny because, you know, I've been working on it for a few years. My brother worked on it before me. The whole family, uh, you know, stays involved in it. Um, but when we built the uh, John Wayne and American Experience exhibit in the Fort Worth Stockyards a couple of years ago, y- we have this one wall. And on the wall, we have all the years and the film titles, a filmography of his. And it's enormous. It's huge. And that's his legacy mm-hmm. in film on that wall. And as you go through the, the museum and you come out into the last room, the last room talks about his work in cancer. And, and uh, he did beat lung cancer and he, he did lose his battle with cancer 17 years later um, with stomach cancer. It really had spread everywhere. Uh, but he said to, to us as, you know, I was 17. So you know, my older brothers and sisters, uh, they're you know, 20 to 25 years older than I am to 28 years older. I don't know. He said, use my name to help the doctors fight cancer. Mm-hmm. And so the doctor that was treating him happened to be, you know, a very significant person. And, and some of his research was in melanoma. Uh, and some of the research that, that we supported off of his research has gone on to help people with breast cancer and other diseases. And, and uh, I can tell you a little more about what what he's responsible for in cancer. But in that last room, we have a wall of surgeons that have been trained by John Wayne. And and when I say they've been trained, we have a surgical oncology fellowship training program. Mm -hmm. So a surgeon comes out of school and he can go into private practice where he can match with John Wayne and become uh, a fellowship trained surgeon. So they'll come for a couple of years and they'll get experience doing uh, unique and difficult surgeries with the best surgeons in different disciplines so you know they, they might be in your abdomen or they might be in your chest or they might be in your brain um but they come out and these guys become specialists in brain breast melanoma uh, gi or urologic cancers and they also are trained how to do research while they're going through this program so there's a wall of over 200 uh, of about 200 now 
surgeons that are out there treating people. Mm-hmm. And that's another legacy of yeah. my father's that he didn't know about. Yeah. And so you can look at standards of care like the sentinel node biopsy technique or immunotherapy or vaccine therapy for cancers or you know liquid biopsy blood test. These these are things that came out of research that John Wayne sort of um, initiated. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, there's another, there's another 40 year legacy um, uh, yeah. in fighting cancer. And, and so we didn't do a great job of letting people know how important John Wayne was to cancer research treatment and uh, education. So with the cancer foundation, we've, we've got some programs that get out there and uh, share the information with people and invite them to join John Wayne in the fight against cancer. Sure. Well, stay with us. We've got one more segment coming up next with our guest today, Ethan Wayne, as we talk about the John Wayne Museum that is now open down in the Fort Worth Stockyards. We'll find out more about that when we come back on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Animal health is key to your business. So how do you track cattle health treatments? Well, stop relying on pen and paper or complicated programs. Performance Beef helps you record processing data, enter costs, and track animal health history all in real time at the shoot. The mobile app also makes it easy to log pasture and pen treatments on the go. Your health data is integrated with feed and financial information in one easy-to-use platform, accessible from your computer, smartphone, or tablet. Find Performance Beef online to request a demo. Justin Mills with the Working Ranch Radio Show. Thanks for joining us back here. My guest today is Ethan Wayne, son of John Wayne, as he's been sharing with us his life as his son. And uh, before the break, Ethan, you were talking about the John Wayne Cancer Foundation and referenced the uh, museum that is now open down in Fort Worth Stockyards. I think it's been open for a little bit over a year or so. But uh, let's talk about what folks will see uh, when they go visit that. Well, when my father died, you know, I, I, I lived with him at our house in uh, Newport Beach. Uh, my parents had separated. So it's me and him, and uh, he's not feeling good. I take him to the local hospital. They say, we can't deal with this. He's got to go to UCLA. I drive him to UCLA. He never comes out. So we're up there for two and a half, three months. Mm. As soon as he dies, that house that we lived in was locked down by, you know, the executors and the lawyers. And certain things as well went straight to like the Cowboy Hall of Fame in Oklahoma City. Mm-hmm. And the rest of it was really stored in a like a big storage location for years until 2003 when my brother died. And my family asked me to come in and, and help with the business. I said, what, what is, you know, all, we had like 40 something vaults of, of items in storage. And we thought all the important memorabilia and stuff had gone to the Cowboy Hall years before. Yeah. So we made an appointment to go look at, uh, at these vaults and, you know, you open it up and you're like, oh, this is, here's dry cleaning fluid and paper cups and toilet paper. <laughs> and then, you know, uh, an Academy Award. So, yeah. oh. you know, we almost thought it was all junk. And then we realized, oh my gosh, we've got to take a closer look at this. And that was an entire uh, project to go. I mean, that took a couple of years to, to even get that organized. Ethan, was that emotional to do that? It was in a way, uh, you know, I, I found the items that were in his top dresser drawer. Uh-huh. You know, this was stuff that I, you know, I looked in that drawer 
weekly as a kid, yeah. you know, rummaging for this or that. And uh, I realized that he had his prop man's card from 1929. It says Duke Morrison on it, 1929 mm-hmm. season. Mm-hmm. That's, that's when he, his first job in the movie business. And he still had that card. And it just made me, you know, realize as an adult, oh my gosh, like mm-hmm. this was, he had this his entire life. Mm-hmm. And then he made a really, you know, significant career out of it and impacted, uh, you know, the world, uh, you know, all because he got that card in 1929. Mm-hmm. So yes, it did. Um, Things from my room were in there. Things from my desk drawer were still in there from when I was a, hmm. you know, a young, young boy. Uh, so it was interesting. And then we knew we had something significant. Um, I wasn't sure about a museum. Um, I'd seen a lot of them fail and, <laughs> yeah. and didn't know where to put it. And so there were a few years where we, we sort of organized it, had it, and we'd show it to people, and we'd, you know, we might use it for direction in our, in our business and making products, etc. But we didn't. We just had it kind of hidden. And then uh, I met Patrick Gotch mm-hmm. uh, at the NFR. Um, he introduced me to Craig Cavalier. Patrick Gotch is Cowboy Channel and RFD TV. Yeah. And Craig Cavalier is Majestic Realty Development, and they just took over the Fort Worth Stockyards. So Cowboy Channel has gone into the Fort Worth Stockyards, and Patrick said, there's a place where this stuff should be, and it's, it's in the Fort Worth Stockyards invited me down there, introduced me to Craig. They showed me the plan for the stockyards. I thought it was spectacular. You know, we looked at obviously LA and Hollywood. We looked at Las Vegas. We looked at Branson. We looked at Nashville. Uh, we looked, you know, we looked at a bunch of locations and nothing felt right. And this felt perfect. Yeah. So we uh, immediately leased a space and, and built out a what turned out to be a a fantastic exhibit down there in the Fort Worth stockyards, right next to the rodeo Coliseum. Mm-hmm. And uh, to be able to see the items that were in storage displayed properly is, it's, it's so different. I can't tell you. Yeah. To see something in a box or to see it displayed, lit, yep. you know, the story behind it, it's very impressive. And um, this exhibit, you know, can take you from my father's birth, you know, through his death, but it, it takes you not only through his professional life, but his personal life, his friends, his relationships, his family his other interests, his boating, his recreation, his ranching, his mining interests, uh, and then, you know, uh, his legacy uh, in, in the cancer research. So it, it turned out much better than I had hoped. And uh, I'm proud that he can be in display mm-hmm. for people in, in a way that I think is, mm-hmm. you know, you're always where you're not doing something well enough for him. And, and I think that this is, I think it's well done. Yeah. And, uh, I think people are enjoying it and I think he would be happy if he got to see it. I think he'd be astonished that, you know, 40 years after he took his last breath, there's still tens of thousands of people a year coming to, to just look at his items and learn more about him. Mm-hmm. As we kind of wrap up here, I, I want to get to you because so many times you talk to people and they're always asking about your dad and they're asking about his career and everything, but you're, part of his legacy as well and i think just the fact that who you are and what you are doing to carry on his legacy through uh the cancer foundation through the through the museum i also uh, believe that that speaks volumes of who he was of what you are and who you are today and and i just want to you know i don't want to overlook who you are and what you're doing well that's nice it's um it's funny you grow up with with um when you're a kid you don't know it even a 
as a young adult, I, I didn't realize that I had a giant, giant John Wayne billboard behind me. Just, you know, <laughs> not the sharpest tool in the shed. <laughs> but uh, I, I will tell you, you know, everything that we do for John Wayne, it's, it's a family effort. It's, it's not just me. You know, I have my brother Patrick and my sister Melinda and uh, Aisa and Marisa and, uh, you know, grandkids uh, of my sister Tony. Uh, you know, everybody is uh, a good person and uh, stays involved and, and tries to help in any way they can because, you know, even if they just had a, a minor memory of him, you know, they realize the importance of his legacy and what a, what a great guy he was. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of been fun to come back and, and go to work for John Wayne. You know, I worked as a stuntman and I worked in television. I had a couple couple jobs mm-hmm. uh where I, they started calling me Ethan Wayne instead of John Wayne's son. Oh, and then when I took yeah. over this, this business years ago, I became John Wayne's son again. <laughs> it's, you know, it's funny. Yeah. It's, uh, it's nothing that you really have control of. But, yeah. uh, you know, it makes you realize what a, what a significant legacy he left for people. You know, for me as well. So I, I don't feel like, like I need to compete with it. I feel like, it's, I feel like I'm, I'm there. I'm, I'm part of it. It's sort of part of my responsibility to try to get that value set out. Like, who are we as people, right? So we, this was our father, and who did he raise? And mm-hmm. you know, are, are we, are we those people? You know, let's be those people. Yeah. I I will tell you, <laughs> there were a few years where I really could have used some advice. <laughs> yeah. Well, Ethan, I'll tell you, I sure appreciate you taking the time. We've you've actually given us way more time than than I had requested originally, and I sure appreciate you joining us here on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Well, it's fun to be here. You got me really reminiscing and thinking about things. <laughs> yeah. You know, I can't. I, I love being in a rural environment. So if anything comes up for sale in Wyoming, call me. <laughs> All right, I'll let you know if anything. Again, thanks for joining us on our program. Yeah, my pleasure. Ethan Wayne has been my guest here today on the Working Ranch Radio Show. By the way, if you want to find out more about everything that they are doing with the Cancer Foundation as well as the museum down in the Fort Worth Stockyards, you can go to their website at johnwayne.com. We'll be back with a look at our long-term weather on the Working Ranch Radio Show after this. Do you have a young child, grandchild, niece, or nephew that loves the weather and wants to learn more? Day Weather has produced a children's weather journal full of weather facts, fun weather experiments, coloring pages, and pages to record weather observations for every season of the year. The weather journal is for ages 3 to 7 and designed to be fun and educational. The interactive weather projects are fun for the whole family to take part in. For only $10, the Day Weather Weather Journal is a great gift idea for any occasion. Click on our Amazon link to order at dayweather.com. Welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show. Justin Mills with you as we take a look now at our long-term weather. And meteorologist Don Day is joining us. Don, I've been listening to your weather reports. You've been talking about uh, here in the next week or so, we're going to see some pretty significant cold weather as far down as uh, in the southern, in the Gulf states, potentially. And so with that uh, bearing down here into this this next week or so and long-term-wise, are we going to see that uh, that colder weather more westerly too, as far as like into Arizona, New Mexico, or California? Well, that that's a good question because uh, this is the type of outbreak that is really going to affect everybody. While we think the coldest of the cold will be along and east of the Continental Divide, there is going to be some of this colder air spilling over the divide. So into the Great Basin, even in the Pacific Northwest, and California. Um, 
in those desert states, they're going to get some of this cold air. They may not get a lot of snow out of this, but some of that cold air will leak in over the divide. And once that happens, a lot of times cold air gets on the west side of the divide and you need a, some type of storm system to clear it out. So this is going to be affecting all the lower 48 states, but the concentration is going to be more towards the central U.S. and getting into the east slopes of the Rockies. I think that's where we're going to be concentrating the coldest air the most. And the, and the thing you also get in these Arctic outbreaks, you're going to get snow on the edges. But another concern that we have, this will be especially true in the plains and the southern plains, is the potential for freezing rain, freezing drizzle um, on the where the Arctic boundary meets that more moist air that's near the Gulf Coast. And so that is something that we've got to be keeping an eye on. So this is the type of cold weather pattern that really has a negative effect all across the board over a large part of the country. Mm-hmm. Well, we're knocking on the door to February here. And just to give uh, maybe a, a general look, a, we're, we're, and I know we've started that with what you're talking about here so far, but as we look maybe the latter part of February, just in general, what are, what's the pattern that you're suspecting that we're going to see across the country for February? Well, I believe that uh, most of February is going to be colder than average for most of the lower 48 states and in those areas we just mentioned. Um, precipitation wise, I think, uh, you know, February is not really, a, does not tend to be a wet month, uh, but there will likely be some above normal precipitation in the south central and southeastern areas of the United States. And, and I do see some snow events across parts of the Rockies and the northern plains, while the amounts won't be heavy the snow that does fall will will be sticking around okay all right well that's a good update for our program here today thanks for joining us on the working ranch radio show talk to you again soon and you can find meteorologist don day's website at dayweather.com where you can also tune in every monday through friday morning to his daily video podcast well that's going to do it for us here at the working ranch radio show we are a production of working ranch magazine branded number one by you america's ranchers and we thank you for that i want to thank my guest today mr ethan wayne for joining us as well be sure to join us right here every saturday and sunday at 12 noon eastern on rural radio channel 147 sirius xm or on your podcast provider thanks for joining me i'm your host justin mills and until next time keep your chin down and your mind in the middle so long